Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Personality, in my opinion, is the byproduct of identity. Identity is how you describe yourself. It's how you see yourself. It's how you explain yourself. Um, the fact that you just said that that was your goal, and I don't know if that truly is your goal, but if it is, the fact that you were open and honest about it, in my opinion, would be very good for your identity, if that's what you're actually going for. Um, because now you're sharing with us who your future self is. And so that would have an impact at the identity level. Identity is, again, how you see yourself. It's based on stories. It's based on how you describe yourself. So if I were to say to you, I'm an introvert, that would actually be more of a statement of my identity than my personality, because I'm describing how I see myself. Now, that may impact my behavior, which may then be reflected as my personality. So your, your identity shapes your behavior, and your behavior consistently over time is your personality. Dude, like I said, this is a, this is a really deep rabbit hole. It is, dude. It's a great rabbit hole, though, right? I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Ben, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Of course. I'm uh, very honored to be on your show. I'm a big fan of you and of this show. Yeah, thanks. Well, you know, you and I go way back. I think we're both sort of uh, early, early writers on Medium. And uh, it's kind of funny because I don't think we'd ever met until a few years ago in person. And you have done, you know, what is truly a remarkable job leveraging a platform, you know, coming out of nowhere and really accomplishing something in record time that most people would have said is impossible, all of which we will talk about. But before we get to that, um, I want to start by asking you what I think is a very relevant question, given the nature of your new book. And that is what is one of the most important things that you learned from one or both of your parents that have influenced and shaped who you've become and what you've ended up doing with your life? Yeah, man. Uh, I love my parents a lot. Um, and obviously in the book, I go deep down the rabbit hole of the, you know, I don't go into a lot of the trauma on the side of my mom, but I Mm -hmm. go into obviously deep aspects of the trauma about my dad being an extreme drug addict from basically when I was age 11 to 20. Um, Thankfully, now he's no longer that guy, and I'm no longer defined by that past. But um, yeah, I've learned a lot from my parents, man. Um, my mom, what I'm, what I'm continuing to learn is just how much that relationship matters. But, mm-hmm. you know, for me, at least, like the parent relationship really matters. My mom is relentlessly supportive of me. She's always been supportive of me and my younger brothers. So I'm the oldest of three boys. Like, she, I would say that like, as like an actual parent, 
for a long time, I don't know if I would say like she was like, I, I guess I'm learning what a good parent actually is because there actually is no one mold. Um, yeah. I think in the past, I would I would have probably said that both of my parents were not the actual best parents, even though they're the best people. Um, but mm-hmm. I'm actually reframing that even. I think that they're incredible yeah. parents. Um, yeah. They really are. Like they're their own way, you know, and there's no right way to be a parent. Um, yeah, my mom is just someone who is endlessly supportive. She'll support you to the moon and back. And she's always mm-hmm. done that for me and encouraged me on that. She actually gave me she she had my me and my brothers literally watching The Secret, you know, and obviously everyone has their own opinions on that. I even have my own opinions on that. But she had yeah. us watching that when I was like 13 years old. Like, mm-hmm. uh, I'm not saying that that's what led me to like writing self-improvement stuff. Certainly wasn't. But that's just kind of who she is. My dad, what I've learned from my dad, and he is someone who has had a dark past, but also a lot of light in his past, too. Uh, he's just a good dude. I mean, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't really know how, how better to say it, but he's just a good person. He's a hard worker. My dad, um, he was an attorney when my parents got divorced. And he even was an attorney afterward, but the divorce led him to an extreme drug addiction. And uh, he's no longer really an attorney, although he does some law work. He works for a company and does more of their financial stuff. But he's just someone who is meticulous. Like, he's just a hard worker. And he just, wor- he just works hard. He does a really good, honest, thorough job. And... Um, you know, I've, I, I'm impressed by his work ethic and, you know, he's mm. also super into fitness and health. And so whenever I'm with him, we, we exercise together and we share that. Yeah. So uh, you, when you watch somebody, you know, like a parent who has a severe drug addiction at age 11, you, what is your understanding of that experience, you know, at that age and how has it changed over the course of your life? Like, what when is that was, experience? Because as an 11 year old, you may not even know really what is happening. You just get the sense that something is wrong. Yeah, it was crazy. Um, My opinions and perspectives on the matter are like changing on a daily basis. But uh, as far as back then, when I was, so yeah, I was the oldest of three, 11 years old. My parents get divorced. I come from a very religious family. And and then when my parents get divorced, religion becomes a non like a non-entity. Like both of, we don't go to church for years. It's just, and my dad, yeah, it was weird to watch because my dad was my hero. Um, he would, and I was the oldest. And so I actually think he invested the most in me. And he's even told me that like, you know, he would like sit and do homework with me, sit and do math with me. He'd take me to the baseball games, take me to like my soccer games. And like, he did some of that stuff with my younger brother, my middle brother, Trevor, who actually happens to be in a treatment facility right now. Um, but he invested for sure the most in me. Um, and we were just super connected. And so it was, I didn't actually know that the drugs were happening and it got pervasively worse until I was probably 12 or 13. And then like, I knew stuff was happening. Like he, he, his behavior became more and more interesting, but at some point he just stopped hiding stuff like as much, like there was just like pills and powders, like on the counters, you know what I mean? And and progressively stranger people (laughs) were at our house regularly. And it just got weirder and weirder. Whereas like, so like so much so that my friends even could be like, dude, this isn't normal. Um, like what's going on. And I had friends, I even had friends cause we would just sit and play video games. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. we skateboarded and played video games. Um, and I did have friends who came from backgrounds with drugs and stuff like that. And they're like, dude, this is, this isn't right. Like there's obviously a lot of stuff going on here. Um, 
Yeah. And so it was, it was weird and hard to watch. Um, but like, we still stuck it out with my dad as long as we could, like even until I was like 13, 14, you know, like we still were there, even though it was just nuts around us. And eventually I think when I was like 14 or 15 or something like that, stuff just got so bad that we just lived with my mom full time and we just dropped it. But I mean, how I was interpreting it, super hard to say from this vantage point, given that obviously memory changes over time. But I would say, I think I had resentment for my dad back then. I I think I just definitely, I think I I considered him a failed father. I just, uh, that was the interpretation I gave to it is is that my dad failed us. And and as a Hmm. result, my, my perspective of my life was just that this is life, you know, like we're dealt a bad hand. Like this is just the sad reality. And that this is just like, I just began to have kind of a dark outlook on life and that life's just not what I thought it was. Mm. Why do you think that, uh, you turned out so much differently than your brother did? I mean, you mentioned that your brother is in, uh, you know, treatment facility right now. Like, what do you think was the difference? There were a lot of differences. Um, one is he was two years younger. So he was nine years old when this was happening. I was 11, you know, and I was the oldest and I felt, I mean, obviously we do have differences in our characteristics, but he, um, he was way more emotionally impacted by the divorce initially, even before the drugs, like the divorce through my brother. Um, like he actually, you know, he's one of those people who has a lot of natural talent, like anything he did, he was amazing at, which I actually, as the older brother, slightly resented. Um, like he was in all the gifted programs, you know, when we started, like when we would play basketball, he was always just like phenomenal. When we started skateboarding, he would, he would like literally at age like 10, he was kick flipping down nine stairs. Like he was, he was, he was like just daredevil charisma. Like all my friends liked him and I was jealous. And so, um, I think that there's many factors as to why my brother got thrown off. Um, he, he is more of an emotional person than I am. Whereas like for, and, and I suppressed my emotions and I, I, I just surrounded myself with friends. And I, I think because I'm the oldest, like, I just feel like I need to like hold strong. Whereas the, the divorce through my brother, um, like he started believing he needed glasses, even though he didn't really. So he'd start like, he got prescription glasses, even though like literally he didn't need them. And he just started getting confused, honestly, at age nine. And, and then I think then the drugs just got deeper and deeper. And uh, he didn't have kind of some of the foundational support that I had. Like I had really good friends, um, even just my grandparents and stuff like that. Like I was just the oldest grandchild even on that side. And so I don't know, I just feel like I had a lot of a lot more emotional support and friend support than he had. And I think yeah. as the middle kid, I think he experienced and he definitely needed more support from his oldest brother, like me, who he looked up to. And I kind of shunned him, to be fully honest with you. A lot of it had to do with jealousy. A lot of it had to do with, I was just my own confused self. And so I kind of probably caused a lot of his problems, to be fully honest with you. Mm, Wow. So you mentioned that you grew up in this very religious family. And I wonder what impact that had on sort of um, your worldview, like morality, um, and, and how you went about living your life. And, and you know, because I feel like religion can fall one of two ways, particularly if you come from uh, an extremely religious family, you know, you basically take the best of it, apply it to your life going forward, or, you know, you go off the rails and basically, uh, 
you know, shun the whole thing and, you know, go crazy. So like, what did you take from the experience of growing up, you know, in a religious family and growing up the way you did? I know that you're a father. What impact has had, has that had on you as a parent? It has a huge impact on me, man. I mean, I, I openly and admittedly believe in God. Um, and so I, I kind of had that deeply embedded in me as a young person, like literally like a, a child, you know? And so that, that actually, I believe helped me through my darkest times personally, even though I wouldn't mm-hmm. have considered myself religious, like let's just say during the dark episodes of like from age 11 to 20 in my childhood, like I, I kind of believed God abandoned us or just that we were too far distant from him. I just kind of didn't really think about God that much during that time. Um, even though my family wasn't that religious, certainly wasn't religious at all during that time period. My, and I, I would say my father has kind of returned to the faith. My mom, not really. She's more like new age, spiritual, just accepts everyone really into everything. And, and so I actually get a lot from both of them. Like I would consider myself a religious person, but anyone who knows me, like who's religious or not, would never feel like I'm judgy or pushy or anything. I'm just kind of living what I believe and I let other people do the same. But certainly when I was like, let's just say 19 years old, barely had graduated from high school, was doing nothing with myself, living at my cousin's house, playing World of Warcraft all day. I was living without meaning and I was depressed as a result. And so the place that I naturally went back to for meaning for myself, given my background was religion. And so ultimately I started going back to church and just by myself and decided and I can kind of look at it now from a psychological perspective. Like I needed, a, I needed a, a sense of purpose. I needed a goal. I needed, I needed a path that I believed could get me somewhere. Otherwise, I believed that I would be stuck. And so for me, I just decided to serve a church mission because that was what that was the path that I believed could get me out. You know, my younger brother ended up joining the Marines. For mm-hmm. me, my path to a better life or a better situation or some form of possibility ended up being a a church mission. And so I ended up doing that at age 20 and it it did change my life a lot. As far as what religion does for me now, I mean, it certainly influences my decisions. I mean, I'm, I'm a psychologist. I, I think in terms outside of religion and I'm not dogmatic in how I see things. I believe there's truth in many different forms. I wouldn't just select one, you know? Um, but it definitely influences my decision making. I would say I probably wouldn't have five kids now if I didn't have the mm-hmm. spiritual beliefs. I I wouldn't have. I don't even know if I'd be married. Um, let alone like adopt three kids, have five kids. Like I, I don't think I would have made those choices or oriented my life the way I do. And maybe I wouldn't have even been interested in the topics I'm in if it wasn't mm-hmm. for my deeper spiritual re- beliefs. Yeah. Wow. So you mentioned that you went uh, on a mission for church. Like this is one thing I always wonder about uh, is is when you're on this kind of mission, I'd imagine a good amount of the the things that you're learning is, um, you know, persuasion, but also persuasion without necessarily being dogmatic about it. Um, so, you know, what, what did you learn from that period in your life that you've applied going forward? Yeah, that was, I mean, it was two years, you know, just to give some perspective you know, and this was what we would call like literally, so it was for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This would be like literally Mormon missionaries. So like they made the musical, you know, the Book of Mormon. Like that was literally Mm -hmm. it, you know, like white shirts, name tags. Like, I mean, it's, and just like um, to give some perspective, it's super military-ish almost. Like you have an extreme schedule, you know, you wake up at 6.30, you've got to be done with like shower and breakfast by 8.00 you live with a 
another dude, a companion. You always have to have a companion. Like there's study from eight to 10. Like you study, whether it be like training materials or stuff like that, or like scriptures. And then you spend the rest of the day doing like community service and like teaching people. Like you do a lot of community service and you're just out like pound the pavement and stuff. Um, And, you know, you're knocking on, you know, we spend a lot of time literally like, like helping random people, mowing lawns, like helping people move. We'd go to like elderly places. I mean, we do a lot of that, but we would also straight up go door to door and like knock on the doors and like ask if we could teach people. And, you know, I was in Pennsylvania, I was in Pittsburgh, which is like a really Catholic area. And so 99% of the doors got slammed on our face. Um, And I had no judgment towards that. It actually was interesting, you know, at age 20, in a lot of ways, trying to sell religion, you know, like you're, I mean, that's, it's a scary, it can be a scary conversation when like, you're still trying to figure it out yourself and you're doing it hundreds of times a day, literally hundreds of doors getting slammed in your face. Um, I mean, there's a lot of research on this now, but like a lot of people from our church who serve these missions become very successful in their careers because you learn how to be resilient. You learn how to get rejected. You know, you learn to do something you believe in, whatever that is. You know, if if you're selling cars, you, you learn to put meaning on things like almost like an existential meaning. And you learn to like have a sense of purpose. And you also learn to not be afraid getting rejected. I mean, nothing's harder or more personal to try to sell, even though we wouldn't have considered it selling, it kind of was, um, than your faith. I mean, if you're doing something less religious, which, you know, because everyone has their own baggage and feelings towards something like that, but you just learn to just handle that stuff. And so I I definitely learned that. I I mean, that was where I started journaling, as I've mentioned. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was during that two-year experience that I fell in love with journaling and writing. And I read a ton of books, self-improvement, philosophy, psychology, business, obviously religion. And so I, w- I would study the authors because um, I had never considered myself a reader or a writer before that time. But I, I did get into journaling because that was recommended. Just journal about your experiences. You'll want to look back on these one day. And I started journaling in a different form where I would write about my former experiences. I'd write about my experiences, but I just, I went into a, I learned how to write in a stream of consciousness way where I'd write for literally an hour or two at a time, uh, just with pen and pad. I've got stacks of journals. I still journal because of that experience, but in reading books, my mind just got opened. You know, I'd never really educated myself. I wasn't a student in school, didn't know how to really read. And so I started reading dozens of books on this experience. And, you know, when you start reading a lot, as you know, your brain just starts expanding and changing. And so I was being blown away by all of these factors and I was studying the writers and I just decided on that time that I would be a writer one day. Mm. Yeah, it it is interesting how, you know, uh, the things that you consume have a way of, of, you know, shaping and forming your mind. Like I jokingly say, like, I'm an encyclopedia of all sorts of weird shit because of of Unmistakable Creative and the people I've interviewed combine that with, you know, a thousand... (laughs) Like a thousand books and you're kind of like, yeah, you want to know how to rob a bank? I can tell you how to do that. Um, you want to know how to get into the porn industry? I can tell you how to do that now. Uh, you know, it's it's kind of mind boggling how how that happens. Uh, you know, the, the thing that that really struck me when I when I first met you, there's I don't remember where I read it, but I remember uh, somewhere in Medium, you had written a post, uh, which I think is, is kind of like a perfect segue into the new book where you know, somebody had told you about the reality of, um, you know, becoming a writer. So I want to talk about this in, in two different ways. Um, in that you basically overcame odds that most people said, you know, were impossible. But I also, um, part of me is wary of, 
you know, seeing that as an example, because I think you're an outlier. And I think one of the things that our sort of self-help culture is incredibly guilty of it. And, you know, Greg Hartle and I have talked about this on air is that we basically use outliers, you know, like the Oprah's and the Elon's and the Steve Jobs of the world as role models. But those people are so far removed from where the average person is at that it often leads to a lot of, you know, more fantasizing than actual progress. And so uh, one, you know, uh, let's talk about that idea of, you know, you basically looking at the odds and saying, no, I'm going to overcome them. And you did. But also let's talk about this outlier idea. Yeah, absolutely, man. Um, so do you want me to just like literally say what happened with my writing career? Yeah, yeah. Let, let's talk about the writing career first, but and then I want to come back to this outlier idea because I know that yeah. I have actually referenced some of your posts. It was one, the eight things before 8 a.m. I said, you know what? You could be reading this and there are things here that you shouldn't do before 8 a.m. If you got up at 2, you know, <laughs> if you slept at 2 a.m., the only fucking thing you should be doing at 8 a.m. is sleeping. Totally, totally, totally. Yeah, and I do assume, which I say in that one, and in my morning, my own morning routine changes all the time, but I do assume in that one that people got seven hours of sleep. Actually, that's (laughs) the first recommendation. So yeah, if you didn't go to bed before, let's just say nine or 10, then don't do this. (laughs) Yeah, and that's the problem, right? People people actually literally treat things as formulas instead of frameworks. So, but let's let's go back, tell us about the writing career, and then we'll talk about this whole, you know, outlier thing. I do like, I do like, yeah, I do love that conversation. I'm excited to see what the heck we mesh and make out of that. Um, yeah, so my, my, here's kind of how it went. So I got home from that two year mission in around January of 2010. Um, when I was walking home from that experience, uh, you know, I was a totally different person. I came home and I was ready to start going to school. I decided to study psychology and I knew I wanted to be a writer, but at that time when I just walked home from my mission, I mean, I was so entrenched in my faith and being a missionary that I was thinking that I was going to just be like a religion professor and that I was going to write religious books, kind of like a lot of the ones that influenced me on my mission, even though I'd read like Covey on my mission and stuff. um, I figured I was going to be a religion professor and I was going to write religious books. Um, But I did want to study psychology. I knew that Covey and others had studied psychology and a lot of you know, I, I just was really interested in psychology at that point. Uh, not only just because of my own transformation and my own background, but just having met literally thousands of very interesting people on my mission and just seeing, you know, deep into the ghettos and also wealthy people. I, I don't know. I just was like, okay, I want to understand people. So I studied psychology and didn't really do anything specific to move my writing career forward. So when I got home, it was, you know, 2010. And I would say from 2000 to 10 to 2015, I didn't really do much at all. Uh, I'd studied psychology and then ultimately got into a PhD program in organizational psychology. And so we, me and my wife moved to Clemson, South Carolina, where I did my PhD. And through those four or five years, I I had studied a ton of just self-improvement. You know, I was studying a ton of like business books and ultimately learning a lot more let's just say about the book world at large and did and i would say in late 2014 i started reading stuff from like let's just say jeff goins seth godin michael hyatt ryan holiday like the types of people who are like kind of openly talking about how to become a writer and stuff like that like that's when i was like starting to really think about it i don't think i had the bandwidth to truly think about the how 
before that because mm-hmm. I was so busy trying to get through school and trying to get into a PhD program. And honestly, the reason I got the PhD in many ways was twofold. One was, you know, in my faith, formal education is actually heavily pushed, even though I know, I know firsthand the problems of formal education. You know what I mean? Um, and so I kind of, you know, my leader on my mission, my mission president told me to get as much education as I could. And so I kind of felt inspired to go get a lot of formal education, even though while going through it, I saw a lot of its contradictions and weaknesses. And I still do. And I don't recommend (laughs) most people to do what I did. Um, But once I'd gotten into my PhD program, I felt like that major, major hurdle was done. And I started that in August of 2014. That's when I was like, okay, now I feel finally ready where I can start learning about this book thing. And by then, I kind of had shifted directions where I didn't really, I was obviously not going to be a religion professor. I was more interested in psychology and like leadership and business. I'd read tons of books by that point in business and self-improvement, creativity and stuff like that. And so I was more leaning towards the Ryan holidays and just like, you know, and Covey still influenced me, but I was like, okay, I'm going to write more on this general self-improvement stuff. And so that was kind of when I started studying it in 2015, in the early period of 2015, and by this point, I'm reading lots of Godin. You know what I mean? I read the Icarus Deception, Tribes, Purple Cow. I mean, I was starting to really dig into this stuff and really like try to figure it out. I also started, I mean, I decided I wanted to be an author, but I didn't actually want to be a blogger. I just wanted to somehow go straight to writing books. Mm-hmm. But it, it became very apparent. I started calling agents and, you know, telling them I wanted to be a writer and I started like messaging people like Jeff and others, Jeff Goins and others, and just asking them how to become an author. Like, I'm like, how do I get a book contract? How do I start working with a publisher? Like, you know, I'm like, you know, in my mind, I I had a lot of kind of bottled tension. Like I had gone on that mission. I'd obviously had my extreme childhood and like, I'd, you know, been studying psychology and just had a great desire to communicate and to share. And, and so I just figured you could just start, you know, wherever you wanted to go. but you know, through multiple conversations, it became obvious that like, I actually needed to start at the bottom and start blogging. Mm. And you have to actually build an audience, Ben, you can't have a, you can't write a book. I mean, you could go write a self-published book if you want. And I did do that, but they're like, you need to build an audience. You've got to start blogging and writing online and actually getting people who care about your work before you can get that book deal. And so I ultimately, you know, asked lots and lots of questions in the beginning. You know, how do you get a book deal? I asked Jeff. Jeff told me multiple levels of like, he's like, you know, if you have 10,000 email subscribers, you can probably get like a 20 or $30,000 book deal. If you have 100,000 email subscribers, you might be able to get, you know, a hundred or 200 or $300,000 book deal. And, and so I just was getting this level of information just in the beginning, just information download and ultimately kind of set the quest for myself to get a hundred thousand emails and to try to get a six figure book deal. So that was kind of the mindset I had from the beginning. Uh Um, you know, this is just me exploring. And so ultimately what I ended up doing was buying John Morrow's guest blogger course, which, you know, is like 197 bucks, bought my domain name in early 2015, benjaminhurry.com. And then that's when I just started learning how to write viral stuff. And, you know, then I just, you know, and my story is a little bit outlierish because there's so many aspects of it that wouldn't work for everyone. And I'm not even sure why they worked for me. But basically, I started blogging probably in like April or May of mm-hmm. 2015. And literally, 
in June of 2015, that article, Eight Things Every Person Should Do Before 8 a.m., got read by like 3 million people within uh, within like three days. You know, like, mm. I mean, I was doing headlines galore off of what John Morrow was teaching. I mean, I was right. I probably, between May and June, that, you know, of 2015, I probably wrote 20 or 30 articles. I was pitching yeah. them all over the place, writing on like very like low level plate, you know, like just any blog, any blog that would accept them. Mm. Um, and ultimately, you know, I started throwing stuff on medium.com and that article for some reason or another just smashed it. And then it yeah. got picked up immediately by Huffington Post and Business Insider and other places. And I got a Huffington Post blog. And, um, you know, ultimately, I just kept cranking it for several years on that platform. I learned how to turn it into email subscribers. I read uh, Russell Brunson's book, taught me how to like build landing pages. I read his dot-com secrets book in 2016. And mm. I ultimately learned how to turn it into about 20,000 emails a month. So for mm. over... For over two and a half years, I was getting 20,000 email subscribers a month without any paid advertising. So from 2015 wow. to 2018, late into 2018, I went from zero to like 400,000 email subscribers just through medium.com. And it was just, mm. I mean, obviously there's a lot within that, but yeah, yeah, it was, it was a crazy journey. I got the first book deal in 2017 in January that became Willpower Doesn't Work. I asked Ryan yep. Holiday for help. I paid him $3,000 and... He helped me write the book proposal. He helped me get my first agent. And I, you know, I, I got the book deal for Willpower Doesn't Work literally mm -hmm. a year and a half after I started writing. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Yeah, so, you know, I yeah, I think that, so this is the part that really I, I find interesting, right, is that, like, I'm the, the polar opposite of, of your story, right? I spent 10 years and, like, mine is absolutely a Cinderella story. Like, an editor at Penguin stumbled on something that I happened to write on Medium. Now, keep in mind, I did the work. Like, I spent, you know, all that time, you know, actually in the process. And I think that the sort of temptation that we have, you know, I've seen in a lot of people is they'll hear a story like yours and they'll be like, okay, how do I reverse engineer that? And this is the big thing I always say, like, this is the one variable that throws off every so-called formula for success. And that's you, you know, like, <laughs> it's true. It's the, true. And that, you that can't have somehow, all of my background and whatnot, right? Well, that's somehow not taken into account when people consume, you know, personal development content, like they ignore context. Uh, and I think insanely that that's why so. we insanely it, so we end up with this sort of outlier problem. Like the temptation would be for somebody to like, oh, okay, cool. Write on Medium, you know, talk to Jeff Goins, uh, you know, call a bunch of agents and do exactly what Ben says in a year and a half, I'll have, you know, a six-figure book contract. Like, you know, I mean, and the funny thing is like, you know, it, it's it's interesting because despite having, you know, like a list that was nowhere as near as big, but, you know, self-publishing, I ended up with a pretty, you know, lucrative book contract. Uh, but I don't have any of the, the factors that you do. Like, that's probably why you have a second book deal. But at the same time, the this is the outlier problem is the one that I, I think is really pervasive uh, in, you know, the this world of, you know, personal development. And, and I think it really is sort of this beautiful segue into talking about this whole idea that personality is impermanent. Because what I, you know, I, I recently finished reading this book uh, titled "The Relent- How the Relentless Pursuit of Positive Thinking is Undermining America. And you know, like you hear that and you might think, God, that's a pessimistic view. And at the same time, like, you know, personal development, I think, encourages a lot of delusional optimism, um, mainly because people don't consider context. They're like, oh, I'll just do what this person did. And it's like, like, you know, the thing is that now you go to Medium, right? If somebody started Medium today, first off, there's thousands of people. Uh, you know, it's like Literally kind of like tens of thousands now. <laughs> I mean, yeah, who I, mean knows I, I don't, hundreds of thousands, I don't, probably. Yeah, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't get anywhere near the same mileage I used to from it. But um, I mean, to me, the value of having done that was I learned how to create, how to develop a process for my ideas. Um, which is far more valuable than, you know, the outcome itself. But yeah, I mean, I, I kind of, as somebody who writes about this stuff, as somebody who has, you know, uh, 
a degree in psychology, organizational psychology, and who just wrote a book called Personality Isn't Permanent. Like, what is your view on my criticism of all this? Um, I think that your criticism is merited. I think that context matters way more than Western thinkers give it credit for. That's um, one of the things that I tried to point out in both of these books, actually. Willpower doesn't mm-hmm. work being fundamentally about how context is more important than willpower. And that in our culture, we think you can grit your way there without actually understanding that the context matters more. Uh, so that definitely was the fundamental idea of that book. With this book, I slam a lot of the personality tests as an example, because those tests fundamentally ignore context. You get a score on a test and you assume that that's who you always are versus mm-hmm. in different contexts, you're going to be different. And you're and so um, I definitely couldn't agree more that uh, context matters greatly. Uh, I'm, I'm also a big believer that context can be shaped. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, that was a big aspect of willpower doesn't work. Um, Ellen Langer is one of my favorite psychologists. She wrote a book called Mindfulness and a book called Counterclockwise. She's uh-huh. She's been at Harvard for a long, long time. I don't even know if she's still there. She uh, she was one of Adam Grant's mentors. But she's, okay. she, her books and her work, to me, it, it very much deeply influences my thinking. And um, she's been studying mindfulness before it became trendy. And all of her stuff is based on context. And really, most social psychologists view context as king, that you can't understand someone without first understanding their context. You can't understand how they're acting without understanding their context. And so, you know, this this idea is really important for a lot of different reasons, because it forces us to not be judgmental of other people. Um, like as an example, when I was 11 years old, I didn't understand my father's context. I didn't know why he became a drug addict. And I couldn't have come to understand his context at that time. I I, I mean, I could have tried, but I wasn't, I wasn't emotionally or intellectually capable. I became in survival mode given just my situation. And also he might not have been in a place, but, you know, context shapes the meaning of content. And, and that's true of content itself, like information, but it's also true of people. Um, you know, so like as an example, during COVID-19, when it first started, I used the word viral in one of my articles. Like I, mm-hmm. I just, uh, I said, you know, look, this new article is going viral or something like that. And this was like right when it was first hitting, like in March or April and people were heavily sensitive and, you know, and I don't blame them for that at all. But people, you know, I got probably 30 or 40 emails that just said, Ben, will you please not use the word viral right now? It's not really appropriate right now. And I said, no worries. And so I like didn't do it. Had I said that word, you know, like a, like a month before, before COVID hit, no one would have been triggered by it. No one would even thought about it because the context shaped the meaning of that word. And Mm -hmm. so um, obviously a fundamental aspect of reframing is about, or choosing a better meaning, meanings being the ultimate, in my opinion. Like I think, you know, everything's about the meaning you give to things. Life is all about meaning more than anything. Uh, In order to produce a meaning, you have to have a context. And when you Mm -hmm. change the context, you change the meaning. And so kind of pulling all of these, you know, ideas back to your question, I, I, I think the hard part is providing that context um, in a consumable way um, because I understand that everyone has a different context and part of providing information is giving people information that they can use, but there's a 
fundamental problem in that you don't know the reader's context. You don't know where they're coming from. You know, you're doing your best to give them information that they can use to hopefully change their context. But yeah, there, there is a flaw to the, you know, and this is what a lot of psychologists would be angry about with self-help information is Mm -hmm. that information about context isn't given. Um, Not only not given about the writer or about like what contexts are needed for this information to be useful, but also a respect to the reader's context in the fact that how how much can they truly apply this given their context, you know? A lot of that stuff is not accounted for in this type of information. No. Wow. Well, speaking of which, let's talk about this whole idea that personality isn't permanent. Uh, how did you arrive at this conclusion? Like, what, what made you want to do this as the next book after Willpower Doesn't Work? Yeah. Um, it was certainly not necessarily the topic that I was thinking I was going to go after. So a lot of what inspired Willpower Doesn't Work was obviously my background in addiction. Father being a drug addict, brother being a drug addict. I've had my, you know, my own issues with addiction. And so I look at personal growth, a lot of it from the standpoint of how would you overcome an addiction? You know, although I have a big background in psychology and even like, you know, my, my background in psychology is more like leadership and training and stuff like that's more the business side, even though like I've studied very much deeply the therapy side. Mm-hmm. Um, and just with my background in addiction, you know, a lot of people who are in the addiction worlds love my books. They love willpower doesn't work. They love personality improvement because I, I kind of speak their language, um, just cause I've been so deep in that world. And so I am always interested in addiction and I was told to read the book, the body keeps the score from Joe mm-hmm. Polish, who's yeah. Joe is very deep in the addiction world. He's had many addictions and he's very open about all of them. Um, And so I read the book, The Body Keeps the Score, with an interest in studying addiction and just how trauma, you know, is, you know, one of the major reasons why people would even go into an addiction is unresolved emotional trauma. Um, And but the thing that really hit me and where my my mind was at when I was listening to that book was how much trauma shaped personality. For some reason, Uh that just really was hitting me hard at the time I was listening to that book. And it was probably in summer of 2018. Like, so Mm -hmm. personality, I mean, sorry, willpower doesn't work came out in March of 2018. And, um, you know, at that point we had adopted our three kids. My wife was pregnant with twins. Um, you know, so this was 2018. We now had three kids and two on the way. And like, I was going through a lot myself. My own world was becoming a lot more complex. And so my thinking was becoming more complex, um, less simplistic, less just easy answers. And, um, yeah, that book really hit me. And I I began thinking a lot about personality and about what personality is and what people have wrong about personality. And I thought it was a big enough subject that I could, I could hit the deeper notes as far as what Uh, changes, how it works, why people get stuck. Cause I was already a believer in change. You know, I, mm -hmm. I felt like I had gone through a lot of change, um, since my, before my mission and even way after, and I believe I'm still going through a lot of change. And I felt like having gone through a PhD in psychology, there was even a lot of confusion on the subject of personality within psychologists. You know, like I had a friend who was a professor at Clemson who believed personality was the be all end all and that it can't change Mm -hmm. and that you're born who you are. He obviously also had Christian beliefs that were 
influencing his background. And, and most psychologists generally are actually not that religious, to be honest with you. It's a pretty no. atheistic field. But I just thought, I, be- I didn't think personality <laughs> was permanent anyways. And now I have this amazing book telling me that trauma freezes personality and keeps you stuck in repetitive cycles. Um, I'd been told throughout my PhD by every one of my professors that personality tests like Myers-Briggs and those any any type-based tests are just junk science. I mean, I'd been told that by every one of my professors. And those things are obviously so popular. And so there was just so many conflicting concepts around this subject of personality. I just mm-hmm. felt like it was the right topic to dive into to teach really cool ideas, obviously on yeah. on overcoming trauma, on making rapid change. It just felt like the right topic that I could like build a mind map around (laughs) as you and I would think of it and just say like, this is the vehicle through which I'm going to teach some of these really cool, important ideas. Well, it's funny you mentioned that because I'm literally looking at the mind map I have of your book as we speak. So <laughs> let's, uh, let, let's let's get into it to, you know, I think what you call the myths of personality, and then we'll talk about the truth of personality. I mean, you say that, you know, that the myths are that it can be categorized, which you, you know, references uh, personality tests, which is interesting because we make so many decisions like, you know, all the way up through the corporate world, like the corporate world uses Myers-Briggs as some sort of like litmus test for what is going to be, what is a person going to be good at, um, which I think that, you know, it takes us to that idea that, you know, it's innate and fixed. It's something you discover. I think the one that I, you know, th- those myths, like um, one, you know, can you expand on them? But the one that struck me in particular that I thought was, I didn't, I was kind of like, really? It's the one you said about, you know, who you authentically are. I think most people, when they hear that, are like, wait a minute, what do you mean? Who I'm authentically am isn't my personality. Yeah, absolutely. Um, for me, personality and comfort zone are very similar concepts. Um essentially to do anything outside your comfort zone would probably be doing something outside your typical personality. Uh, unless that just has become your personality to be someone who's constantly going out of your comfort zone. Uh, but if you're that way, you're probably changing a lot. Um, you know, like I, I was one of the things that I learned on my mission actually, because I had to go out of my comfort zone a thousand times a day by like knocking on a door and it was not, it was always nerve wracking, you know, like uh-huh. to knock, to knock on a door and to like have someone maybe angry answer in us and then to try to figure out how we could, you know, persuade them as you would say, or to get them interested. Like that being outside the comfort zone regularly was to me where I started to become what I would call more flexible and adaptive and also more confident as a person. Um, so anyways, going back to the idea of authenticity, um, a lot of people think that who you, you know, a lot of people, they view personality and they, 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 when they think of personality, they think of the word tendency. They think of the word natural ability. They think of the thing like strengths and weaknesses. They think like at the core, there's gotta be something about this person that doesn't change. You know what I mean? Like, and obviously we all do have a, you know, uniqueness about us and we all do have tendencies and things like that. Not to say that those are hardwired or can't be changed, but when people think of the word authentic, what they're, you know, at least in maybe a millennial term, you know, obviously there's many different uh, ways of describing authenticity, but generally, you know, when you're like, you know, be your true authentic self, live your truth, stuff like that. You're thinking like, do what feels right or most natural to you and don't do what doesn't feel right. Um, and that can then lead to a similar conversation of, well, only do your strengths, only do those things that come natural, avoid your weaknesses. You know, you hear people like Gary Vee say, just go all in on your strengths and ignore your weaknesses. 
Um, that's a very, I would say, like, I, I, I wouldn't agree with that. Even though, like, mm-hmm. I very much believe in going with strengths, like, and like, but I'm also like, like, as I, like, I, when I became a, a foster parent of three kids, and I tell this story in the book, but it did not feel good at all. It didn't feel authentic. It didn't feel natural. It didn't feel normal. It didn't feel easy. Uh, in many ways, I didn't really want to do it. Like it was during the first year of my PhD program. And I, and I avoided coming home for the first year from school because first off the house became a chaotic mess. Their behavior was nuts. You know, like the first year they had a lot of emotional baggage for completely understandable reasons. And I wasn't as capable as I am now as being, uh, uh, as being empathetic towards them. I was kind of like freak. I, I mean, I wasn't ready. I hadn't adapted nor identified as a parent. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so I was just like, what the freak? Um, and I think that that right there, like even my, my two twins now, we've got 18 month old twins. You know, we live down in Florida. A lot of people have swimming pools here in Florida and we have to put our kids through swimming lessons. A lot of kids go through swimming lessons, literally like bef- sometimes before they can even walk here. Um, just cause the last thing you want to do is go to the backyard and find a drowning child, which unfortunately and sadly has been the experience of many people uh, or a drowned baby. You don't want that. And so with like four or five months ago, we started our twin girls into swimming lessons and you know, let's just say their authentic selves wouldn't have wanted to do that. They hated it. They were crying. They were upset about it, you know, and and it took months for them to adapt and to learn, you know, I would say engaging in deliberate practice with the help of a coach. Now they love it. Now they jump in the pool. They're happy. And so I guess my view of authenticity is that it is often an excuse for not doing anything difficult you know, for, mm. for, for only doing what immediately feels good. And that's what Simon yeah. Sinek would say too, is he, he's called a lot of millennials out, but and yeah. I'm obviously a millennial, but he, you know, there's been a lot of debate about millennials in the workforce because they're not willing to, to, you know, as Cal Newport would say, develop rare and valuable skills. Instead, they want immediate gratification for work that they're immediately passionate about. Mm-hmm. And, um, that, that mindset doesn't really work for me if you're someone who wants to develop something useful. Um, And so my, you know, I think most people's perspective of personality, you know, it being innate, it being natural is that you should then find what's immediately passionate, immediately natural. Um, And if there's not, and and so it's based on pain and pleasure. It's based on if it's painful, don't do it. If it's pleasurable, do it. Uh, It's based on immediate gratification and emotion. And so that's kind of, the mindset that I would want to pull people away from is that authenticity is can be a distraction from actually choosing something that would transform you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's talk about the the what you call the truth of personality. Um, you basically you know break it up into a couple of different categories, which you know these are the ones that I want to get to. Your goals shape your identity. You talk about the sources of all the goals and how your identity should intentionally be designed based on your future self. So I'm going to do something completely selfish here. And I'm going to use a goal, one of my own goals, and I want you to walk me through it with, you know, the framework of my own goals. So let's say that I have a goal to, for example, you know, have a million people listening to Unmistakable Creative. Let's start there. I would love that goal. (laughs) Yeah, I I mean, me too. I mean, okay, so let's talk about how, let's talk about how that would shape identity. Yes, absolutely. So 
It's great that we're talking about identity because obviously identity and personality are, are different subjects. This book's called Personality is Impermanent, but now we're talking about identity. And identity, in my opinion, actually is fundamentally way more important. Um, personality, in my opinion, is the byproduct of identity. And so identity is how you describe yourself. It's how you see yourself. It's how you explain yourself. Um, the fact that you just said that that was your goal, and I don't know if that truly is your goal, but if it is, the fact that you were open and honest about it, in my opinion, would be very good for your identity if that's what you're actually going for. Um, because now you're sharing with us who your future self is. And so that would have an impact at the identity level. Um, so I guess let me just break this down really simply and then we'll, we'll cover your goal. But identity is again, how you see yourself. It's based on stories. It's based on how you describe yourself. So if I were to say to you, I'm an introvert, that would actually be more of a statement of my identity than my personality. Cause I'm describing how I see myself. Yeah. Um, now that may impact my behavior, which may then be reflected as my personality. So your, your identity shapes your behavior and your behavior consistently over time is your personality. Um, and most people's identity is based in the present. Okay. So if you were like most people, Srini, you'd just be saying, this is where, <laughs> this is where unmistakable creative is right now. Yeah. Um, but identity truly can and should be based on goals. And so I guess here's how I would break it down for you. If you really wanted to have this podcast reach millions of people, I would quantify that a little further. Like, is that monthly? Mm -hmm. Is that annually? Um, but then I, I would also define out before you even hit that goal, who future you is, you know what I mean? Who's your future self? You know, yeah. like that's where a lot of the cool research in psychology has gone, in my opinion, is, you know, your identity isn't actually that goal. That goal is the way you achieve your future identity. Um, okay. And so future you, what does that actually look like? I mean, are you the exact same guy you are right now? Or are you doing things at a different level? Like, what is your lifestyle different? Is your money different? Is your ability to communicate different? Uh, how are you impacting people differently? Like, what does your life look like in two to three years? Let's assume that you've achieved that goal in three years from now. Mm -hmm. Who are you then? Like, that's actually where you would actually start. Because that's then where you would allow yourself to frame an identity around that future self. So it's funny you say that. Um, there's something that, uh, like, you know, I learned this, uh, you know, concept of environment. I mean, obviously, you wrote about that and, and willpower uh, doesn't work. And, uh, you know, I learned about it from a guy named Jim Bunch. And, uh, you know, my friend Charmaine, once I was telling her, I said, you know, if I had a million dollar recording studio, I would hang frame prints of the people I've interviewed on my wall. And she looked at me and she said, honey, you don't need a million dollar recording studio for that. You need some Ikea frames and a willingness to print those damn covers. And so I have, it's funny because I have um, covers of, you know, four or five people people that I've interviewed um, behind me on the wall in my office. But as I was talking to my, my roommates the other day, like we'd reached out to Trevor Noah's team, you know, and we, you know, they turned us down. And I thought about changing them. I was like, what if I replaced all those album covers, not with people who I have interviewed, but with people I want to eventually interview? That would be brilliant. That would be a very future self-oriented environment design. Yeah. yeah Interesting. That yeah. Be, that'd, be and really, that's a, that'd be really smart. And that's a really simple one, you know, it's kind of, um, I actually the, love that example. Like if I would have known <laughs> that example, I probably would have thrown that one in the book. Cause I like that example <laughs> better than the one I gave in my book. Like, I love that example. It makes a lot yeah, of it sense. Just, it occurred to me the other day and I was like, my room was like, yeah, that's genius. You should absolutely do that. Um, 
But there's one other part of this. Now, Ryan, I know you know Ryan's work really well. Now, Ryan had said something to me that always stayed with me about the fact that he never talks about a book until it's finished. And that you know, one of the things that happens when you make public announcements of these grand gestures is you get all this praise for something you haven't done yet. And it actually demotivates you in a lot of ways. Like, and I've seen this happen. Like people make grand gestures on Facebook all day long. And I'm like, listen, nobody gives a shit what you're going to start. All they care about is what you finish. Mm -hmm. So, but I mean, so there's, there's sort of a balancing it. I mean, you're not saying to make like, you know, bold proclamations in public that never come true. Cause I think well, that I that's where have to say, I don't agree with Ryan in that case. Okay. Interesting. You know, I actually heard from Seth Godin that you should be marketing a book three years before it comes out. Right. And so, um, but yeah. Ryan is doing that. He's just not talking about the fact that, you know, he's writing a book. Cause there are a lot of people who go and talk about writing a book in, you know, they, they keep mentioning the book they're going to write. Well, I mean, you've, I, yeah, I know you've there's seen way more like, steps than just doing, just doing the telling for sure. Yeah. 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 I would say of the many, many people who are telling you that they want to write a book, there's 10 X more who aren't telling you what they really want to do. Yeah. You know, people often hold their true dreams to their chest. Yeah. It's easy to be a dreamer who is only that, who is all talk, no walk. But mm -hmm. I would say that's actually less of a problem than people not openly and honestly admitting what they really want to do um, out of fear of rejection or, you know, because if you actually say, this is what I want to do, then to some degree, you're slightly accountable to what you just said, unless you want to make yourself a liar or you want to make yeah. yourself into someone who's, oh, you're that guy who's told us for five years, you're going to do this, but haven't done it. Most mm -hmm. people don't want to put themselves in that position. So as a result, yeah. they don't openly acknowledge and admit what they truly want. Mm -hmm. um, also, obviously, most of those people who would say, you know, I want to write a book but never do, don't engage in, you know, the type of strategies or practices recommended to actually build confidence, to build that identity, to upgrade, you know, like your environment and subconscious. Like they're, they're not actually doing anything beyond just saying that's what they want to do. Mm -hmm. And so it never actually solidifies as a part of their, their new identity because it's yeah. never actually reflected in their behavior beyond just saying it. Yeah. Um, so we yeah. talked a little bit about, you know, sort of looking at environment and I know that, you know, environment is one of those really powerful forces, but you also talk about the sources of goals, which are exposure, desire, and confidence. Can you expand on that and talk, you know, beyond environment, how you think about this idea of designing uh, your identity for your future self? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So exposure so basically i make the argument in the book and there's a theory in philosophy i'll tell a quick story to kind of explain this and then i'll break down kind of how we choose the goals we do because from my perspective the goals we choose are the things shaping our identity um but a lot of people aren't really that conscious of their goal um instead they just think that that's what they do so the story is the one I actually do tell in the book. It's, it's Andre Norman. I'll break it down really shortly. But Andre is someone I know. He's actually someone who I think would be a freaking amazing guest on this show. But he's the guy who basically grew up in the hood of Boston and ultimately ended up in prison and then ultimately ended up becoming a fellow at Harvard. But what ultimately happened for Andre is he had a, a teacher who actually cared about him. You know, this black kid 
His teachers mostly probably segregated against him, probably thought nothing about him because he came from a crappy situation and just thought there was nothing to invest in him. One teacher, Miss Ellis, his band teacher, actually cared about him, saw him as a human being rather than just as whatever. So she got him interested in the band. She got him interested in trumpet. And ultimately, he got interested probably because she cared about him. And so he felt some probably positive affinity towards her. And so he actually liked going to her class. And that really had some deep meaning to him, which then obviously that meaning became part of why he fell in love with the trumpet. And so for a few years, he really fell in love with the trumpet. It became part of who he was and part of what he aspired towards. And ultimately, when he ended up going to junior high, his friends, uh, you know, his, his junior high friends told him that he couldn't carry the trumpet around because they thought it was stupid looking. And so he ended up throwing the trumpet away. And once he did that, he no longer had any reason to go to school. Uh, Because from what he said, and he's told this to me and my kids in our living room, his purpose was gone. The trumpet was his purpose. And once the purpose was gone, the behavior stopped. It would have taken extreme willpower. It wouldn't have made logical sense. And so his purpose shifted to really being cool with his friends. And obviously they were criminals and stuff like that. So that landed him over time into prison by age 18. And the point of all of this is, is that whatever purpose you have, whatever you're actually seeking, that's the thing shaping your identity. That's why I say your goal shapes your identity. Um, ultimately, his goals kept shifting over time. And I kind of just try to sh- use his story to prove that fact. He gets into prison. He learns of the drug hierarchy and stuff like that. He ends up seeking to be one of the number one thugs in prison. It lands him in uh, solitary confinement for a few years. And ultimately, his quest is to be the top dog in prison. And once he's got the shot to do it, is all he's got to do is kill a few guys, and then he's unquestionably number one. He finally questions the validity of his goal. You know, like it hit him in the face, as he calls it, his Wizard of Oz moment, where he realizes that maybe at the end of this yellow brick road there's actually nothing there it only hit him because he was finally like about to achieve it and he was and he was able to question why am i building my whole life around this target um because whatever target you're pursuing that is your identity he he ended up shifting his target to getting into harvard because that was the only school he'd ever heard of and from his exposure his belief going to college was his way of staying out of prison and becoming a successful person. And so he made Harvard his new trumpet or his new purpose. And that then gave him a new identity to work towards. Um, So the only reason I share all that is I, I call to question every one of your listeners right now and ask you to genuinely consider what the heck you're actually pursuing, because whatever it is you're actually pursuing, and you may not even be aware of it, it may be acceptance from friends. It may be going through college. You know, for a long, a long time, that was my identity, was getting through college. <laughs> for a long time, it was being the number one writer on Medium. You know, now it's quite different. Now it's, I want to freaking be a great dad. You know what I mean? And stuff like that. And so what is it you're actually pursuing and pouring energy into? That's the thing shaping your identity. And your identity is shaping your behavior. And your behavior over time is shaping your personality. That's how it works. Wow. And so the question then becomes, well, where do these goals actually come from? And that's the three things I break down, which are exposure, yeah. desire, and confidence. Uh, exposure just being you wouldn't actually pursue something you're not aware of. That, that brings into concept of context. Um, if you're not aware of something, you're probably not going to pursue it. 
And so obviously you would want to be someone who's expanding your context regularly so that you can be more aware of more things because, <laughs> you know, you're limited by what you're aware of. And that that's actually internally and externally, you know, but in this case, more just speaking about external, like becoming aware of more options, you know, our foster kids and even still their kids, you know, but like they were aware of very little when we got them because they'd grown up literally in a trailer in the middle of the country, in the middle of nowhere in South Carolina, you know, like Clemson, where, where I went to school is in the middle of nowhere. There's actually a lot of debate about it right now because it's literally on what used to be a slave plantation. Um, but they had no awareness of much and they still don't given that they're kids. But when we first got them, you know, we traveled all over the place. I think we've probably taken them to 40 of the United States just to show them stuff. You know, they've listened to tons of audiobooks. Like we're trying to just show our kids more and more. Um, but you can't pursue or you can't, go after something you're not aware of. And so you can see this in what people pursue, you know, like little kids, they go after what their parents want because that's all they're exposed to. You know, um, as you grow up, you start to get exposed to what your friends want. So you start chasing what your friends have or what they want or what they tell you is right. And so over time, as you grow up the goal, and I, this is why I do like Ryan's work. I like your work. I like the idea of education and learning is that in order to actually pursue meaningful goals or at least thought out or informed goals, you need to be educating the heck out of yourself. And hopefully the goals you're pursuing now are more informed than the goals you were pursuing five years ago, because hopefully you're a different person than you were five years ago and that you've been exposed to a lot more. And so you're seeking hopefully better aims than you did, better than you could have even imagined a few years ago, just simply by your own ignorance. Uh, and that same concept moves forward towards your future self. If you think that who you are right now is the be all end all, then you're assuming that your future self has the exact same information that you have right now, which is in my opinion, a pretty bad perspective. <laughs> it also then forces you to be humble about your current perspective because right now you're incredibly limited by what you currently know. And in the future, you're going to know much, hopefully you're going to have much better information, better context. And so in fact, I already know that that's going to happen for all people because that's what the research shows. All people are going to change over time, whether they're intentional about it or not. Your future self isn't going to be who you are. But if you're actually constantly growing and expanding and getting more exposure and information, then your future self will be pursuing better, more informed goals than you are right now. Therefore, they will have a different identity. Therefore, over time, they will have a different personality. Yeah. Um, so that's the one. I don't know if you want me to go deeper into <laughs> into uh, desire and confidence, but we can. We yeah, can I mean, I think want. the well, let's let's uh, let's actually go into you know, like I'm realizing how deep this is now. Like we, you and I would have to talk for three hours to cover, you know, how much you've put into. Yeah, this, yeah, but, yeah. I mean, I, I don't even know if we'd cover the whole book. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's you know, even just looking at the mind map as you're explaining each one of these things, you know, I think we've kind of you know talked a bit about trauma through stories, but I think what I want to. Um, really get, you know, is a sense for this idea of changing uh, stories. But one of the things that, you know, in terms of shifting stories that really struck me was how you talked about emotional regulation, because I, I think that, you know, and particularly right now in this moment in history, it's big, what I can fundamental, what I can tell you is that, you know, I think people feel panic, they feel fear, they feel anxiety, they feel uncertainty. And as a result, Many of them, I think, are paralyzed. And and so, you know, I know this because I was writing about this, um, you know, for our final, you know, newsletter for the, the you know, Prime launch that we're doing uh, about how 
there, you know, if you look at sort of times in history, Ryan Holiday wrote about this in his book where he said, you know, some of the greatest companies have been built in the midst of a recession. Um, and I realized like, you know, I graduated business school with no job, like, uh, you know, I was spiritually, emotionally and financially bankrupt. Like nobody has a vision that that's what their life is going to look like at age 30. And yet had it not been for that, there would be no unmistakable creative today. I wouldn't be having this conversation with you. Um, but, you know, I don't think I was aware enough to know that I had a, a positive emotional reaction to that. So let's talk about this idea of emotional regulation. Mm-hmm. It's it's huge, man. Uh, yeah, so I, I guess just to break down the basics of emotions, emotions are fundamental <laughs> to human beings. Uh, we're far more emotional than logical. Uh, we make decisions for emotional reasons. And learning to harness your emotions, learning how to not be manipulated by your emotions, I guess you could say, or governed by your emotions is, is crucial. Um, and so emotional, regu- emotional regulation is about choosing, it's kind of like the idea of react versus respond. You know, so like when you have an, when you have an experience, you're going to experience, you're going to have an emotion. If you get cut off on the road, you're going to, you, you might feel a little bit of panic or frustration or anger. You know what I mean? You're going to have an initial response. Um, emotional regulation is about being aware of your reaction and proactively deciding what to do with that rather than acting on your initial reaction. It's about taking a step back and thinking to yourself, what meaning do I want to give to this experience? And and how do I want to feel? And what do I want to do about this? And that's, that's, that's essentially emotional regulation. It's, it's about emotional development as a human being. And the more you can do that in more in, in increasingly difficult experiences, you know, getting cut off on the road, I think a lot of us can handle uh, reframing our initial reaction and getting over it and moving forward. Uh, one of the things things that's connected to this, which I talk about in the book is the idea of refractory period. And the refractory Mm -hmm. period is the amount of time it takes to emotionally recover from an experience. And for something as small as getting cut off on the road, hopefully the refractory period is instantaneous or within a minute or two, it hopefully doesn't throw off your entire day. Right. Um, but obviously we do have experiences that throw us off emotionally and they can throw us off emotionally for hours or days or weeks or years. Um, you know, that being trauma of some sort where you, you do get thrown off and you're still impacted by what happened years ago. And so emotional regulation is really about choosing the frame that you give to an experience and choosing the meaning you give to the experience and choosing then therefore how you feel about it. And so this is why, you know, you want to get really good at this as a skill. Because if someone cuts you off, your initial reaction is based on your, your feelings. And if, if your feelings are frustration or anger towards that person, then you're going to create really bad meanings in that situation. The meaning might be, I hate this guy, or that person is a terrible driver. Like you could come up with all sorts of meanings, which are going to impact how you feel and how you see the world and also how you see that situation. You're going to create a really, let's just say limiting context. And usually it's going to be heavily judgmental towards the other person. It's going to ignore context. You know what I mean? Whereas if you step back, you can take a different look. You can proactively think about it from a different angle. 
you know, maybe this guy's in a hurry. You know, maybe let's give this guy the benefit of the doubt. Maybe who knows what's happening? We don't know the situation. Um, you know, it's about choosing the the context so that you can choose the meaning. And this skill, there's there's obviously systematic steps. Obviously, if you're in the car, you can't sit and pull out your journal. You know, what I mean, this is just you thinking in like, you know, if there's someone near you having a conversation, if not, you can do this in your head. Ultimately, choosing a better meaning for the situation so that because the meaning you give is going to ultimately shape your emotions. And meaning making is fundamental to identity. It's fundamental to how we feel. And what's great with emotional regulation is the better you get at it, the more emotionally flexible you become, where you're not immediately consumed by your emotions and you're not driven by your initial reactions. As you get better at emotional regulation, you become more flexible emotionally, where you can sit with those emotions and you can still move forward in an intentional, healthy way rather than having the emotions totally derail you. And obviously, if you're pursuing big goals or if you're just doing a lot of challenging stuff, it could be parenting, it could be running a business, you need to become emotionally flexible so that you can actually handle the crazy ups and downs. Even if you're just trying to deal with life in the midst of COVID-19, all sorts of world changes, you need to become more adaptable, which requires that you become better at handling your emotions. And a great part about this process is, is that you get to do it towards not only things you're handling in the in the present, but things you've handled in the past. Like I like like we've already talked about lots in this conversation. We've all had crazy things that have happened in our past, and the former versions of ourselves gave meaning to our former experiences, whether good or bad, based on our context, based on where we were at emotionally <laughs> in our development. We did give meanings to our experiences in the past. The cool part about memory and the cool part about just the past is that time from a psychological standpoint is nonlinear. It's not, you know, obviously the actual sequence of events, you can't go back, but from an emotional and from a psychological perspective, you actually very much can. You can go back and you can reframe the meanings of former experiences by looking at the context differently now. And actually that's what we do all the time. Uh, Like right now, obviously with all the racial stuff going on in the country, we're now looking at former aspects of history differently. We're now looking at Colin Kaepernick with praise, whereas maybe four years ago, we were looking at him with anger. I'm not saying everyone was, but like a lot of people's opinions towards form, this always happens. This is how history works. With new data, with new context, we reshape the meaning of the past all the dang time. And so we can do that on an individual level as well. And we do that with ourselves, but with some events particularly the negative traumas, particularly some of the things that really have impacted our identity. We tend to disconnect those from the rest of the context of ourselves. They say you decontextualize trauma. You disconnect it from everything else, and that's why it doesn't get integrated in with new experiences. And so that's why it can take a lot of emotional pain sometimes to actually face old traumas because mm-hmm. you kind of have to reconjure the meanings that you had formerly given to those experiences. You've got to re-go back to some of those painful emotions. And that's why journaling about former experiences is so so recommended in therapy. Um, it's yeah. recommended to journal and ultimately to talk about your former experiences so that you can then get them out. Viktor Frankl said that emotions cease to be suffering when, when once you give them a clear picture. 
mm-hmm. you give it a picture, you give it a context, you give it a story. You say, this is where, where I was at. This is how I felt. This is how it impacted me. However, I don't really feel that way anymore because I can now see things from a different perspective. I'm no longer choosing to see it that way. I'm no longer choosing to see my dad being a drug addict as something that was bad for me. Actually, I'm choosing to believe it actually was really good for me. And that had I not gone through those experiences, I probably wouldn't have had such a powerful mission that I had. You know, like you get to choose the lens. I don't have, like what I just said is not objective fact. It actually objectively wasn't good for me. It was chosen to be good for me because I got to choose the story and meaning and stories go together. Whatever meaning you give to an event, that's, the, that's now the story. And your story is your identity. And that identity is what shapes your behavior. So it's just crucially important on an emotional level for us to choose better meanings for the past and the present and ultimately the future. Hmm. Wow. So the final thing I want to talk about, and you know, I want to kind of go about it in a different way. Uh, you know, you talk a lot about the subconscious, which, you know, people have talked about forever. And I think that, you know, the the great thing is we know this. The bad thing is I think that this whole idea that, you know, oh, I can program my subconscious leads to a lot of mental masturbation. You know, people like sitting around and, you know, watching <laughs> yes, the secret does. and like, you know, staring at their vision boards thinking that, hey, you know, uh, you know, this is all just going to magically fall into my lap now that I'm doing this. And I mean, you and I both know that's not the truth. So when you think about the subconscious from that perspective, then how do you actually change it in a way that's, that's realistic? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it is such a fascinating subject, the subconscious, um, how I look at it and kind of how I framed it in the book. And I do think it makes it more realistic is, is that it really has a lot to do with your emotional level as a person, you know, you're, you're, you as a person are a, are an emotional being, you know, our physical body. A lot of people think that the body is actually comprised of emotions. Um, like there's a book by a lady named Candace Pert called the body is the subconscious mind. And mm-hmm. she also wrote another book called molecules of emotion. But a lot of people actually think that um, like the body, like emotions are actually physical, you know, which is why I think we feel them so powerfully. And, and that emotions are the things that relay information throughout our body. Um, and so for example, we act on, you know, unconsciously all the time. Actually, they say that we act 90% of the time or more unconsciously on autopilot. So like, here's a really tangible example. You're driving, you hit a stoplight, you pull out your phone and look at it because you're at the stoplight. You didn't necessarily do that consciously. You actually probably did that unconsciously. Um, you, you know, we get so addicted to various things that we just do them habitually. Um, and so habits and unconscious are very connected, but what drives habits is actually emotions. It's the emotions. The habit is to produce the emotion. So pulling out your phone without thinking about it gives you a dopamine hit. And dopamine is a chemical that gets released throughout your body. And so really, um, the reason we act unconsciously is because we, we, our body becomes accustomed to an emotional climate or emotion or levels of emotions. You know, if you need a lot of dopamine, for example, because your body's gotten so addicted to that state, then you're probably going to do a lot of things to produce dopamine. You know, sometimes you could be addicted to stress, you know what I mean? Or whatever it may be. The point is, is we engage in behaviors to produce emotions. And if you want to upgrade or change your subconscious, you've got to kind of do it 
you're kind of resetting a lot of things. <laughs> like that's why I really recommend going outside the comfort zone and engaging in new and intentional behaviors is because it kind of resets the emotional climate rather than just acting unconsciously and being driven by whatever emotions are currently fueling you. You're actually seeking new experiences, which kind mm -hmm. of reset that. It's not just emotions. I mean, it's also, it has a lot to do with just how you see the world. It has a lot to do with your identity and your beliefs and stuff, but you can systematically change at the subconscious level. Like how I look at it at the really basic, simple level is, Behaviors and experiences. Behaviors and experiences are what change your subconscious. Like I was, I gave a speech in somewhere in England. Um, I don't know, like a year and a half ago. And I just decided to look up really nice restaurants just for fun. I was just there by myself, didn't have my kids. And I just decided to look up like Michelin star restaurants. I got paid a good amount of money to give the speech. And I'm like, I'm just going to drop like 500 bucks. Like I don't, I don't do that very much. No, it's like, I'm not throwing money at junk, but like, I'm just like, I'm going to go just do this. And so I went to this extremely nice restaurant by myself and I just sat there. I had my journal with me and I was just observing the situation and I just ordered whatever. And I let someone bring me food. And I was, and the idea came to my mind of subconscious enhancing experience um, just being in a situation that to some degree exposes you to something different than you're typically exposed to, you know? So in the book, in the section on exposure, I talk about Charlie Trotter and about how Charlie Trotter owned a famous restaurant back in the nineties that like Oprah and other people recommended, but Charlie would bring like, like homeless kids into the restaurant and let, and expose them to just a radically different experience. So that's like why they say that experiences, you know, can lead you to never going back. They become point of no returns because they stretch you, you know, but Charlie was exposing these kids to something new, not to make them sad about their current situation, but to expose them to some different possibility. And so experiences can, sh can kind of reshape your sense of what's possible or even what's normal. Um, and then behaviors can do the same thing. Like right now, all of us, our unconscious is kind of what I would call your current self. Whatever you do on a daily basis, your just regular pattern, the thing you do on autopilot to some degree, whatever is just current you is basically your subconscious. If you had a different future self that was at a higher level or at a different level or doing something totally different, you know, like the, the unconscious Ben Hardy in 2015 didn't like parenting. It created a lot of bad emotions for Ben Hardy. That's why he stayed away and he went back to school and he didn't want to go home is because at the unconscious level, Ben Hardy didn't like that. You know, he wanted to in his head, uh, but it took me like working at it and investing in it and, and, you know, building better meanings around it. And ultimately a lot of trial and error and a lot of hard days to unconsciously love it and for it to become a part of my identity. And you have to kind of invest yourself in it and actually genuinely want it and fuel that desire and give a reason for that and go through the ups and downs of learning, kind of like my daughters. Unconsciously, they could not swim four months ago and they hated it. Now, unconsciously, they love it. There's a lot of positive emotion connected to it, but they went through a lot of freaking hard learning to get there, a lot of experiences. And so um, 
that's kind of how I look at the unconscious is it gets shaped through experiences and behaviors. And if you consistently start acting in a new way, your unconscious is going to follow suit. If you consistently put yourself in new environments and expose yourself to new experiences, your sense of what's normal or what's real shifts. And what becomes unconscious or just what we could call the new norm to your future self may be completely unfathomable, maybe even undesirable to your current self. Hmm. Wow. Um, dude, like I said, this is a, this is a really deep rabbit hole. It is dude. It's a great rabbit hole though, right? Yeah. Yeah, it really is. Um, well, this has been fantastic. I mean, I think you've given people a lot to think about. Uh, so I want to finish with my final question, which I know you've heard me ask, what do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I think the thing that, in my opinion, makes something unmistakable is probably just that they're just being as honest and real as they possibly can in that situation. You know what I mean? Like they're just being, they're not being reactive. They're not doing something you think that they want you to do. They're just doing what they genuinely believe they could or should or want to be doing in that moment. Um, you know, like, yeah, I mean, it's just, uh, it's, it's easy to be encumbered by internal and external obstacles, um, whatever those may be, you know, your own fears, your own imposter syndrome, your own fixed mindset, your own trauma, um, or external, the worries about what other people think or, or mm -hmm. legitimately a tough environment. And I think that unmistakable from my perspective uh, is transcending both of those things to the best you can and, uh, and whatever that looks like for that given person in that given situation, to me, that's unmistakable. Amazing. Um, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and your wisdom and your insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, uh, your work, and uh, the new book? Yeah, man. Well, first off, thank you, man. Uh, <laughs> I, I definitely really appreciate you and your work and appreciate your patience getting me on this show. Um, benjaminhardy.com is my website. You could get a free future self checklist there and get access to a free 23 minute training where I break down the best science from personality isn't permanent. And my, I guess my invitation would be just check out this book. This book is thick. It's deep. Um, there's about 150 journal prompts for reframing trauma for designing your future self. I bust a lot of myths in this book about personality. Uh, and I think I explained things in this book that maybe they've been explained, maybe they haven't, but I, I think that this book will surprise you in a, in a way that maybe you haven't been surprised by a book in this genre for a while. Hmm. Amazing. Um, well, I can't thank you enough for, uh, taking the time to join us and for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the unmistakable creative podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.